coming up next on the Wetfly Swing Podcast. And he's raging at these trees, and at the last minute, he just tips the plane sideways and banks around the river, along the river, around the corner, oh, wow. and takes off. And I mean, he didn't think anything of it. That's just how you do that. But I didn't understand it. I thought we were going right in the trees. Jeez. So, yeah, I sort of swallowed my gum on that one. That was John Garrock with another classic story. I'm on summer break today, so we're giving you a classic replay from the vault back to November 2018. This is The Swing. Welcome to the Wet Fly Swing Fly Fishing Show, where you discover tips, tricks, and tools from the leading names in fly fishing today. Hey, how you doing? Thanks for stopping by the show. We are on a little summer break today, uh, but you can still leave a review for this podcast. It's a great way to support the podcast and show your love for the show. Uh, most apps have this possibility, so click down there, and a, if you've been enjoying the show, a five-star review would be super appreciated. Today's episode is presented by Jackson Hole Fly Company, a new kind of online fly shop. They design and manufacture their own high-quality fly rods, reels, gear, and over a 1,000 fly patterns. You can get 25% off your first order right now. Head over to jhflyco.com swing to get started right now. That's jhflyco.com swing. You support this podcast by clicking through that link to Jackson. Fairflies creates ethically sourced premium fly tying materials with their 5D brushes. You simply tie better flies faster. 5D brushes contain perfectly proportioned materials to tie amazing streamers, bass flies, saltwater flies, and more. Fairflies is also creating intentional supply chains so you can change the world with every fly you tie. Head over to wetflyswing.com slash fairflies right now. That's fairflies, F-A-I-R-F-L-I-E-S. Check them out right now. I have a classic replay episode today with John Garrick from 2018. John has written some of the greatest fly fishing books of all time and takes us behind the scenes of it all, including some of his uh, big struggles along the way. We talk about some of the uh, some of the big books uh, that he's published over the years and what he has coming next. Hope you enjoy this classic replay today. So without further ado, here we go. John Garrock. How's it going, John? I'm uh, doing good. Good. Great to have you on here. I've uh, I've had a lot of I've I've been kind of reaching out a little bit uh, in the social media area, letting people know that you're coming on, and and I so I have a few questions just from some folks in the crowd. Um, but uh, before we get into it, I was hoping, you know, you've got a lot of background here. Obviously, uh, kind of a prolific uh, fly fishing writer, one of the biggest names around. Maybe you can talk about how you got into fly fishing to start off, and then how how that came to be, how you came to be to where you now you've written. I think almost twenty books. Yeah. Yeah, 20. Well, I I grew up fishing. I mean, I don't remember when I started fishing. I just vaguely remember being plopped on the end of a dock or on a on an overturned bucket or uh, or sitting in a rowboat being told to be quiet so I wouldn't scare the fish, which of course is a myth, but and when I moved out west, I went to college in uh, in Ohio, and I graduated, and um, 
you know, I had a I had a degree in philosophy, which a, a, you know, a bachelor's degree in philosophy is qualifies you to dig ditches, basically. So <laughs> I just came out west because I always wanted to come out west, and um, saw people fly fishing, and I I'd probably seen maybe one or two fly fishermen in my life. And, um, but out here, that's, that's kind of how people were fishing. And I just thought it was beautiful, you know, after chunking level wind reels and, and hula poppers and stuff, I just thought it was gorgeous and decided I wanted to do it. And, uh, that was that it wasn't easy then because you didn't have, there were a couple of books that were mildly helpful and, but there was no. Um, there were no websites, there were no, um, shops didn't, shops didn't give lessons. I mean, you know, it was just, you just. And what year was this? Uh, this was in the, uh, this would have been, see, graduated in 68. So I think I arrived in Colorado in 1969. So right in the middle of the, uh, uh, kind of, uh, free love and, uh, the hippie movement, were you, uh, did you find yourself in the, in the middle of that whole thing? Uh, yeah. Or was that, was that strong out there? Oh yeah. Yeah. This was like, um, yeah, this was like the, the, uh, hate Ashbury of the Rocky mountains. Oh, nice. So what was that? I mean, it's funny, you know, for me being on the outside of that, I'm a little younger, so I missed it, but I think I probably would have been involved in that in some form or fashion. Maybe you can explain for those that maybe never felt it. What, what was that like? How, how was it different than it is now or that whole thing? Well, God, you know, books have been written about this, and um, it's hard to explain. But um, you know, it it was tied up in yeah, it was tied up with drugs. It was tied up with Eastern philosophy. Uh, we were the were and are the post-war baby boom generation, and um, a lot of us had grown up not. Uh, you know, not exactly affluent, but not like wondering where our next meal was going to come from or, you know, if dad was going to come home after work and that, that kind of stuff. So it was like, you know, we had we, we were coming from a little bit of comfort. And of course, uh, it was the Cold War and uh, we were at war in Vietnam. It was the Cold War, so we thought we could be uh, wiped out by nuclear bombs any second. And um, so people just kind of let their hair down, literally, literally <laughs> and figuratively. Yeah. You know, we just we we freaked out and we started looking for different ways to do things. Um, uh, I think one of the one of the things that got me into fishing as seriously as I got into it was that, you know, my dad loved to fish when he had the time, but he never had the time. And it was like, I don't want to do that. I don't want to like work my life away and not do what I want to do. Yeah. He just had a, just, he was a working man and just pretty much worked all the time. Is that, that was the deal? Yeah. 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 Not much time for vacations and holidays and things like that. Yeah, and I mean, you know, we'd go out every once in a while and go fishing, and I loved it, and so did he, but, you know, he just never really got to do it. That's cool. That's cool. So you, uh, you know, so you became a trout bum, I mean, basically because uh, you, you kind of looked at your dad. That was a, a big part of it. 
it was a big part of it. Yeah. Yeah. So philosophy, you got into what, what was your, what was your plan there before you kind of got into all the fly fishing stuff or were you thinking about, uh, well, I guess you weren't thinking about fly fishing back then. Not so much. Um, I just, you know, that was back in the days when people would get a liberal education, liberal with a small L, because it was seen as as beneficial to be educated. So you dabble a little bit in the sciences, and you dabble in philosophy, and you take some sociology and some psychology and art history and literature and you know, you would just learn about civilization and you would come out the other end educated. And it, it, the, there were certainly people who would go in and they'd study business and they'd come out and start a company and, you know, there was all that entrepreneurial stuff going on. But there was still that that sense that it was just valuable to be educated. And to have to have read some books and to have looked at some art and read some of the great thinkers of the world and you know so that I didn't have a in short I didn't have a plan. Yep. No, and I think that's uh, I didn't either when I went and got into was going into college and I didn't really have a plan either. I think that's probably I don't know maybe that's that's an okay thing to have. Um, and you found you obviously found your path and. You know, you're, you're on that, uh, I guess I kind of feel like I'm on that journey. Is that kind of what you feel like you're still on that journey or are you kind of, you hit your, your destination, you kind of, now that you've got so much work published? I suppose it's a little of both. I mean, it's, um, being a freelance writer is just always a struggle and, but you do, you do sort of get used to it after a while. You get used to making money and unpredictable increments at unpredictable times and you get to be a good saver. Um, I'm still fascinated by the work. People always ask me, well, would you rather fish or write? And um, it always disappoints them when I say I'd rather write. <laughs> nice. Uh, I think I enjoy both equally. Yeah. You know, I was just thinking about now as you came through and you got into, started writing and, and I know you wrote a lot for magazines and, and lots of different places. What was it, what did it feel like for you when you got that first book published? Um, what well, was anticlimactic? You, um, you know, when you set out to be a writer, that's your, you know, your first goal is just to get anything published. And then you get something published and you get a little check, which you know, it doesn't go as far as you thought it would. And then you start thinking, well, I need a book. I need to publish a book. And it's sort of the same thing with the book. It comes out. The world doesn't stop. You know, you just you make a few bucks here and there and um, sell a few copies. And it's fun, you know, it's fun to see your name on the cover of a book. And then it's like, well, uh, what's your next book going to be? And, you know, oh, well, okay. Uh, so it's, you know, it's just kind of a continuum. It's still, but uh, that said, I'll say it's still really fun to have a book come out. It's just, you know, you, the publisher sends advanced copies and you, you open that big fat envelope and you take out a couple of books and you go, God damn it. That's my book. Look at that. <laughs> um, yeah. And, you know, they're 
lately, uh, I haven't been delighted with all the the way the books have looked always. Um, they're okay. But lately, I've been having um, my uh, longtime friend, uh, Bob White, the, the painter, do the covers. So it's, um, I, I think they're really handsome now. And, um, you know, they still don't, they still don't cause a big stir or anything, but uh, they're out there. People buy them, do a little book tour and go around, do readings at bookstores and stuff like that. And it's, it's a lot of fun. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's, uh, I was just thinking as you were talking about, you know, how you, you kind of like, like doing the work sort of thing. And I had John Shuey on in a past episode and, um, and he was kind of saying the same thing that you can't, you know, you can't wait. You got your book, you, you got the one book that's getting published, but, uh, you know, if you wait around and kind of pat yourself on the back, then somebody else is already kind of, uh, you know, ahead of the game on you. Is that kind of how you feel? Or are you just, you know, doing your own thing and you just keep publishing and, you know, how is that process? And, and then another question for you on that is, I don't know if you ever heard the term, you know, kind of battling resistance, uh, kind of the, um, Stephen Pressfield sort of thing, but you know, how have you battled resistance? I don't know. I haven't encountered a whole lot of resistance. You know, when I started out, there was, there's basically no internet, right? It was all, everything was in print. Everything was done over the phone or through the mail. Most people worked on typewriters. I mean, it was what people would now consider pretty pretty damn primitive stuff. And, um, but there were a lot of magazines and, uh, you know, they had to fill the pages every month. And so there was a market. And if you could write adequately, even just adequately, um, you could get work and it wasn't great paying work, but if your ambition was to be a writer, you were writing, you were selling articles, you were getting paid making some kind of a living and um and there was a pretty good book market still is in spite of in spite of ebooks and all you know and websites and all that stuff there's still a pretty good book market um and so i don't know there's uh of course there was a level of resistance in the beginning but it was justified because uh, you know, I tell I tell uh, beginning writers if you're getting rejected, it's probably not because you're a misunderstood genius. <laughs> it's it's probably because the work isn't very good. Yep. So it's it's like on you, uh, and it's it's no one's it's no editor's responsibility. Your editor isn't your English teacher in high school. It isn't like their responsibility to tell you why it isn't good. They just say we don't want this, so you know you have to bear it down. Um, Tom McGuane said once that as the, as a writer, your only currency is your readership, and uh, the only way you can get a readership is to do quality work. So it's like all on you. Yeah, I mean that's a a good point, really, for anybody. And I think about the stuff I'm doing with this podcast. It's kind of the same thing. I mean, there's nothing, you know, 
I could produce a really crappy show and, and people wouldn't listen. Or I could do my best to get great guests on and, and try to do my best to ask interesting questions and, you know, fly fishing tips and then people will listen and they'll pass it on. And I think, you know, that's, that's what you've done with your books. Well, and yeah, and, and a thing like you do, um, your interview, your people are, are, um, uh, are your currency. And so, Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, I've done a bazillion interviews and every once in a while you get somebody that just doesn't really have anything to say. Or, or you know, they're just having a bad day. They don't really feel like talking to a reporter, and um, that's where you know the Terry Grosses of the world really shine because great interviewer can draw that out mm-hmm. somehow. And I was never a great interviewer. I mean, I was great if somebody had something to say, but uh, if they were a little reticent, I didn't really know how to draw them out yeah i think that's uh i kind of uh you know not to not to pat myself on the back too much but i did have an episode with uh i think it was episode let's see 27 um yeah the line speed jedi uh, or actually yeah uh, and uh, we were talking and it was with tim rollins and he said when we got on the phone he was kind of nervous he was kind of uh-huh. nervous to do the show and i did, he told me this after and I was just chatting. He said, when we got on, he heard my voice for like 30 seconds. He just totally settled down. And that was just a great compliment, you know, that I've never had before. The fact that, you know, him hearing me just kind of chat and, yeah. and it was a great interview. I mean, it was an amazing, he talked about how he <laughs> learned to fly in Alaska. It was unbelievable. It blew me away. But yeah, is that kind of, um, I guess that stuff kind of resonates. Same th- with you. People pick up your book. I mean, you're a, you're a, a kind of a, epic writer now i mean that's probably how people feel when they grab your stuff yeah you hear that um to to me it's just uh it's just the work and i struggle with it and try to make it as good as i can make it and um uh yeah i mean people people sometimes think it's easy and um and it sh- it should be easy. I I was at a signing once with a couple other authors, including my old friend Ed Engel. And uh, some guy came up and said, "Boy, what a life you have! All you do is fish." And I was just in one of those moods, and I said, "Well, who the hell do you think writes the books?" <laughs> and I don't remember what the guy did or said, but when he left, Ed leaned over and he said, "You know." If people don't think the books are work, that's a compliment, dude. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, that's a great point. Yeah, and and it's like, you know, that's why I keep Ed around, because he just, he's one of those guys that everybody should have in their life that just straighten you out every once in a while. Yeah, that's awesome. That's awesome. Yeah, I think everybody has to have that, that time where things, yeah, you're, you're, uh, kind of diverging in a different path but uh yeah maybe we can jump into a little bit on your writing because i mean you've got a bunch i mentioned one book you know the trout bomb i think that was maybe your first book um or at least early on for somebody who's never uh, i mean most of the people probably listen have have read some of your stuff but for somebody who's never read your stuff how could you explain your your writing or your your books well you know i basically just tell stories i'm an essayist and so I'll pick 
uh, a subject or a place, and I'll just start somewhere. The lead is always the hard part. You know, the, the your lead is like the door that lets you into the story. And where that door is, is real important. So I'll spend a long time. I just got back from Labrador a little while ago and, and I'm still, you know, go through my notes and I go, well, where do you start? It's always tempting to start at the beginning, but if you're not careful, you end up with, you know, the narration to your boring neighbor's slideshow about his vacation to Hawaii, right? Um, so sometimes you start at the beginning, sometimes you start in the middle, sometimes you start when you're packing for the trip. I mean, it's just, you know, but you find, you find a place that's going to let you in. And then hopefully that leads you through uh, the rest of your material. And then you, you have to be open to other things that come in. I mean, one of the great things about having done this for over 40 years is that you have a tremendous amount of experience to, to draw from. And things pop up, stories that maybe had always seemed unrelated, but somehow relate to trolling for lake trout out in the boat in the rain, and they'll just pop out of nowhere and... I think you have to be open to that kind of accidental discovery. And you're just, you're just looking to light up the story for people. Um, you know, writers are always talking about showing the reader instead of telling them. Um, you know who Roger Angel is? He's an old New Yorker writer. He's written for the New Yorker for, God, 50 years. He's an old guy now. In fact, I'm not even sure he's still alive, but uh, he once wrote a great essay called This Old Man, and he was in his 90s when he wrote it. And instead of saying that he had crippling arthritis in his hands, he said that if he made a pistol out of his finger and forefinger and thumb, pointed it at your nose and pulled the trigger, he'd shoot you in the knee. <laughs> And that's showing instead of telling, because it gives you a, a really vivid mental picture of what this guy's hands must look like. Whereas if he just said, well, I have crippling arthritis in my hands, I mean, that's information, but it isn't a picture. Right? And then to do it that way, he's also telling you that he sees the humor in it. Yeah. Right? He's not feeling sorry for himself. Or if he is, he's hiding it well. So that's, that's the kind of thing you, you try to do. Right? Yeah, no, I, I, uh, and that's exactly what you do is, you know, I know people that are, have read your stuff, they're thinking that right now. I, I think, I'm thinking back to some, a few stories you've written that, you know, you do that throughout your whole thing. I mean, humor is part of your thing. Um, and it's sometimes subtle and sometimes, you know, not so subtle, but you mentioned the lead at, at the start, kind of leading into the book. And that's what you mean. There's just kind of the start the first, when people pick up that book, that first kind of page or chapter they read, is that 
what you mean by the lead? Well, the lead, yeah, that's there's the lead to the book, and then there's a lead to each essay. Oh, sure. sure. Um, yeah. So when you go into the lead for, um, I mean, can you give us an example of, of a lead, something that comes to mind in one of your books or one of your essays or just to give an example, maybe of that struggle, how you, or, you know, how you got to that point where you had a great lead. Uh, and I have a story here. I have a story that, you know, if you can't think of one on top of your head, I have a one from trout bum. I was going to ask you about too. Yeah. I, you know, I really can't, I mean, I can't come up with an example offhand. Look, I got a good one then. Well, then actually this is the opposite of lead because this is the, um, this is towards the end. What would you call it when you, I guess the outro or when you're at the, getting that end of the, the essay. I would call it the end. <laughs> so the end. So this was, uh, I think it was, it was early on page 18. So it must've been, um, uh, I think this was in trout bum and you talk about how, um, you were talking about basically you had a leak in your roof, you know, the house was falling down, but you were out fishing and that's what you're doing. And, and, and the wife or the girlfriend was kind of on, on your case. And, um, and you basically said, you know, all things came together at the end because you had this fish tank, um, that was in the house and you ended up just moving it under, under the leak. And that ended up, <laughs> ended up catching the leak and like everything was good. You know, it was totally humorous because you were talking about, mm. you know, this leaky roof that needed to be fixed, but you couldn't fix it because you're fishing, but you solved it because you just moved the fish tank. At the same time, you've got this uh, I guess a wife or a girlfriend who, I don't know if she's pissed off and you, you know, that sort of thing, but you know, can you talk about that a little bit? And I'm not sure if all your stories are, are straight from, from your life or if you kind of bring stuff out from other people or maybe you can talk just a little bit on that just generally. Well, everything, they're all autobiographical. Although I, you know, I'm, I tell stories about other people, but I don't make anything up. I'm not a fiction writer. I don't make things up. Mm -hmm. As tempting as it is sometimes. Um, so yeah, that's, that's all from your own life. But I mean, you know, your memories, you know, one of the reasons I take copious notes is just so I remember clearly most of my, most of my notes from, from trips are just, where I was, people's names, what happened, you know, it isn't, it isn't all, uh, it isn't all, um, literature. It's just, it's just nuts and bolts. Where are the people's names? How do you, how do you spell a Gulawak river? You know, um, uh, things like that. And by the way, what language is a Gulawak? Well, it turns out to be Athabascan, but it's a lot easier to get that stuff on site than it is to try and figure it out later when you get home. Yeah. So how do you do that when you, um, and I've talked about this on the show too, past, um, you know, I had uh, April Vokey on in a past episode and we were, and I know you've done some steelhead fishing and she was, we were talking about steelhead fishing. When you're sitting out there in the steelhead run, like, what are you thinking about? You know, hours and hours sometimes without hooking a fish. Do you, I mean, how do you take notes and then, you know, how does that whole process work when you're out there fishing? Well, I don't usually take notes when I'm fishing. Uh, although I do always have a notebook with me. I might take, you know, if I take a break, um, you know, take a lunch break or whatever, I might scribble something down. But generally I do it, I do it in the evening 
you know, when the fishing's over and the memories are still fresh, I'll just sit down and go, okay, what happened today? And, um, and I don't think about the writing. I just, I just think about getting the information down. And I'll, you know, if somebody says something great, I'll try to write it down as quickly as I can. So I, just so I get the quote right. Things like that. And I'll, sometimes I'll sit down with somebody at some point during the day and, and just ask some questions. Uh, maybe not a, maybe not a full interview, but just ask questions that come up and, and you know, probably 80% of that gets dumped. You know, it's just deep background and it doesn't make it into the story, but you don't know what's going to make it into the story when you're taking notes. So you write down everything, everything, everything you can think of. And then, and then sometimes you go home and, you know, you're catching Dolly Vardens and you go, okay, well, what exactly is a Dolly Varden? So you pour through the books and, and figure out what's, what's the difference between a Dolly Varden and an Arctic char and, you know, um, and then you, you know, you, I fished with a guy once in, uh, the Northwest Territories. Dr. Black, he was, um, he was a doctoral, uh, candidate at the time in fisheries biology with, um, a, a specialty in char. And, you know, in taxonomy, there's lumpers and splitters. There's, there's the people who want there to be lots and lots of species. And there's the people who want there to be only a couple of species. And this guy was a, a lumper. And he said, as far as he was concerned, brook trout, Arctic char, Dolly Vardens, and lake trout were all the same species. <laughs> so, you know, you, you, that popped up somewhere. I know I've used that, but I didn't use it in that story. But that's, that's the kind of stuff you remember. And, uh, and it's, just, it's just interesting stuff that pops up. Yeah, that is, that is interesting. Do you find yourself getting into some of that, you know, kind of the nomenclature and, or whatever there? Do you, do you find yourself, you feel like you're as much of a teacher as you are a storyteller? Um, not really. I don't, I mean, I'm not trying to teach anybody anything. I'm just trying to tell a good, accurate story that's, um, that's entertaining and maybe mines a little meaning out of, out of what's happening. But, you know, as a, as a journalist, you're, I mean, you have to be, if you make a statement of fact, you better by God be right. And, uh, you know, I mean, you wouldn't necessarily know that the way the news is now, but the fact is, I mean, if you say something about a kind of fish or if you say something about the state of Maine or whatever, or some, some boat builder, some traditional boat, um, you need to be right. And that can, that can translate into a lot of research. Um, you know, I did work for newspapers for quite a while and you, you know, you learn that stuff. It's just, if somebody says, well, this canoe was, this kind of canoe was designed by so-and-so back in the 1800s and, 
Um, and it's the way it is because he wanted it this way and that way. Um, you got to verify that. Or at the very least, you have to attribute it. So you say, well, okay, Frenchie the guide says this is why this boat is like it is. But if you're going to take that as gospel, then you have to, if you're going to, if you're going to put it out there as a statement of fact instead of a quote, then you have to verify it. So, and that's actually one we were, before the show, we were talking about the limitations of technology, but that's one place where the internet can be useful because you can look that stuff up on the internet, but you can't trust the internet, but at least you can find sources on the internet and then go to a library and find the book and look it up in the book. Yeah. Yeah. No, that makes sense. That was, uh, yeah, the, the, uh, we were talking earlier off, off air, just, yeah, I kind of brought up the thought about the, uh, how we're all becoming cyborgs. I heard, you know, heard somebody talking mm-hmm. about that because of our cell phones. And yeah, I think that's, you know, we could probably talk another, uh, another hour about that, but, um, yeah, I was going to, I want to check, you mentioned, you know, I mean, obviously you, you talked, uh, you know, Ed Engel and, and you know, he's in, uh, some of your books. I mean, you've talked about a few other people. Do you have a few, you know, mentors or a person that really influenced helping you to get where you are today? Yeah, um, yeah, I do. Um, A.K. Best, I started fishing with A.K. Best a long, long time ago. And, you know, he's an old school, Midwestern dry fly specialist and uh, fly tire. And he taught me an awful lot. He probably taught me everything that I know about fly fishing that's worth knowing. And I've since gone on into other stuff that that he doesn't do, you know, spay casting and steelhead and stuff like that. But yeah, he sort of he sort of set me on my feet as a as a fly fisherman. Uh, I mentioned Ed just has a way of straightening me out when I like start to get you know, off the beam a little bit for, you know, generally matters of attitude and stuff. Just say, look, you know, lighten up. Don't worry about it. John McPhee, who I've never met, but uh, I've read John McPhee for years and years. I think I've read just about everything he's written with the exception of his books on geology, which just lost me. I just couldn't follow him. Um, he's got a great book called Draft Number Four about writing that uh, anybody who who aspires to write should uh, should read that. And there's a long, long section about his computer program that he uses, and that you can skip that. I did, but the parts where he talks about actual writing are really brilliant. Really well written, of course, and really useful. Nice, nice. Yeah, those are. I've definitely uh, for AK. Is there a um, a book or something that you would recommend for somebody that wanted to check him out? Uh, he's written a couple of books. Um, his his. I think his sort of landmark book was called AK's Flybox. It was the the book where he laid out all his patterns that he's come up with. Oh, cool. Uh, I think it's still in print. He wrote uh, he wrote production tying, production fly tying. Um, he actually wrote a little monograph on um, 
it was published by Lions Press uh, called Dying and Bleaching Natural Fly Tying Materials, which is if you're a fly tire and you want to get into doing your own dyeing and bleaching and stuff, it's invaluable. And he's got all his formulas for blending, dubbing, and all that stuff in there. Uh, got a couple other titles can't think of right now. But I think they're all still available. Are they? Good, good. All, uh, and you mentioned a couple other links all at, at the show notes at uh, wetflyswing.com slash 47. I'll have all the notes that uh, we talked about here and links. People can check some stuff out, including including some of the books you have going. And I was just thinking, your most recent, what is your most the most recent book you have out now? Uh, a Fly Rod of Your Own. Okay, yeah, Fly Rod of Your Own, great. And, um, and that book, maybe you can talk about, is that book, I know it's uh, similar to some of your other books. How would you describe, uh, you know, that book and... Or is it different, or do you feel like it's kind of similar to some of the stuff you've written in the past? I feel like all those books, with it, you know, there's a couple of exceptions. I've written monographs on uh, bamboo fly rods and fly patterns and stuff like that. But all those books of the essays, um, I see them as just a continuum. Like, I see them as parts of one long book. Um, part travel writing, part sports writing, part personal essay, part autobiography. Um, and, you know, I consider them coherent books. The, what I'll do is I'll have 20-some essays uh, sitting there, and I'll go back and read through them and think, well, okay, what was I... What was I thinking about what's been the theme of the last three years? And um, and then I'll put them in order and, uh, and rewrite them into a coherent book. Um, but the, um, I don't know, the impetus hasn't really changed. I doubt the theme has changed much, although I couldn't really put my finger on a theme. Uh, never, never could do that, even in college when... It kind of pounded into you. Um, I remember a kid in one of my English classes, the professor said, well, what was the theme of Moby Dick? And he said, man fights whale, whale wins. <laughs> yeah. I mean, just, you know, it just doesn't seem like it's it's profitable to yeah. try to take a, right. you know, a whole book and say, well, it's about this. Yeah. Totally. No, it's definitely, yeah, no, I mean, I think you should keep up <laughs> exactly what you're doing. You got a, you got a good thing. There's no reason to, to change, you know, the stuff. And I've kind of, uh, you know, read both your new and old stuff and yeah, it's, they're both similar and both great. Um, so it's all good. I was thinking of a story. Here's a story for you. I can't remember what book this one was in, but you were talking about, and this is interesting cause it's a steelhead, uh, kind of story. And the first 30 episodes of my show are all steelhead. I've kind of transitioned a little more into trout fishing now. But, mm-hmm. uh, but I have a lot of great steelhead guests, and we talked a lot of stuff. And one of them was Jim Teeny back in episode five. And he talked about how he um, – how well, I won't go into the story. You can listen to that episode. But he talked about how there's this um, New York Times or New York article that came out in one of the big papers and basically said, 
it basically said he throws rocks at fish, you know, man throws rocks at fish to catch steelhead, you know, and they yeah. kind of took it out of context. But basically Jim explained that, you know, he didn't really throw rocks at fish. He threw rocks kind of uh, below fish or, you know, kind of to get him to go up into the place where he wanted him to go. And, you know, you could say what you want about that, but um, it kind of got, got me thinking when I heard you telling a story about a guy with spoons and maybe it wasn't you, but this is a story where the guy with spoons would, would basically get the fish into the run where you could catch them with flies. I don't remember that. Um, okay. But I do remember I was on uh, Miramichi one time with this guy named Frenchie, you know, I mentioned. It was a whole whole story to himself. But, you know, we would um, we do drops. You're in, a, you're in a 23-foot canoe with an anchor, and you just come into these big, sprawling uh, runs. And you'd anchor at the top, and you'd start right at the boat, like a rod's length of line, and swing down as far as you could reach on one side, turn around, swing down as far as you could reach on the other side, pull the anchor, drop down, do it again, all the way down to the to the bottom of the run. And we caught, in this one place, we caught one salmon. And they were in there. They were. They were. You'd see them. You could see them down there. And we caught one pretty nice salmon, and the rest of them just wouldn't move. And so he, when we got to the bottom of the run, he just started the outboard, and he did these fast figure eights all the way up through the through the run, <laughs> and anchored back at the top. And he said, "You know, here I have a cup of coffee. I'm gonna sit here a minute." And I said, what the hell was that about? And he said, that's just to stir the fish up. He said, he said, now, he said, now they're all looking around. They're going, what was that? And, and he said, in a minute, we'll start swinging down and they'll be more active. And, and sure enough, you know, like about the fourth cast, I hooked another salmon. So, I mean, and I, I, I understand that. I mean, people would, people would rock the pool is called if the fish were just sulking. And uh, just get them stirred up and then take a few minutes and swing down through it again. And a lot of times you'd catch a fish. You know, anadromous fish are, are just, they're, you know, you're, you're fishing, you're trying to get a fish to eat that isn't eating. Right? So you're like, what do you do? It's, it's, like, it's like describing the sound of one hand clapping. It doesn't really make any sense, but it still works. And so people have all these all these odd things they do to get that fish to bite. That's one of the things that fascinates me about it is there's just, you know, trout fishing as hard as it can be. Sometimes it's still insert tab a into slot B. I mean, it's like the fish is eating, figure out what he's trying to eat and show it to him and he'll eat it. Right. Theoretically. But with steelhead and salmon, Atlantic salmon, they're just, they're not eating. So, you're trying to trigger some aggression response or some curiosity response, or you're trying to piss them off, or I don't know what it is you're trying to do, but um, I just, I, I, I'm fascinated by the mystery of that. Mm-hmm. See, and you do a little bit of uh, steelhead, kind of uh, a lot of steelhead, equal amounts of steelhead versus trout fishing, or, well, I guess you're in Colorado, so a little more trout fishing. Yeah, I I I have steelhead fished some. Uh, I really like it. I really like spay rods. Um, 
I don't do it. I, I didn't get out this year. Um, I guess the returns weren't great. And, um, but, you know, any chance I get, I'll go steelhead or Atlantic salmon or Pacific salmon. Pacific salmon are great. I'd love to get back up and, and uh, fish for either kings or silvers. I may have to do that again pretty soon. Oh, yeah, up to Alaska? Yeah. Today's episode is sponsored by Togan's Fly Shop, providing superior quality products at an affordable price. An amazing resource for fly tying materials, tools, and fishing accessories. You can head over right now, check out Togan's YouTube channel. They've got uh, new videos going on all week long, all year long. Just check out Togan's Fly Shop on YouTube and find out uh, who they have going right now. We've had at least one episode with one of their pro staff, uh, and it was one of the best episodes, I think, of the year. So they got a good crew and some good stuff going over there. And I'm going to be making a uh, another purchase very soon, and uh, I'm going to be tying up a fly for... Uh, for one of the challenges we have going, uh, I think I've got a uh, Chernobyl, uh, some sort of a Chernobyl going on here. Uh, so stay tuned for that. I'm going to be using some of Togan's materials. So, uh, so this is going to be good. Since 2005, Togan's has been over delivering on price and customer service. And it's time for you to check out what Togan's has going on right now. That's Togan's, T-O-G-E-N-S. You support this podcast by clicking through that link to Togan's. Okay, back to the show. Well, I've got a bunch of uh, different <laughs> questions or ways we could go. I was, uh, I wanted to stick a little bit more to um, trout for a bit and just talk, I mean, especially since you're in Colorado, one of the meccas for, you know, trout fishing. Do you have, you fished all over the place and talked about a lot of different rivers and streams. Do you kind of have a home stream or river you fish? And can you talk about, you know, how you catch fish there? Well, my home water is um, is a bunch of sort of small mountain creeks. And um, they're mostly feral, um, you know, stocked but gone wild, uh, brown and brook trout, a few reintroduced cutthroats higher up. But it's, you know, it's pocket water, it's small water, uh, not terribly rich. You don't get big blanket hatches of anything. So it's, you know, it's pocket water, small creek pocket water fishing, not the most difficult fishing there is but um but i really like it i really like just getting back in there four-wheeling back and hiking and um getting back in there it was pretty it was pretty uh pretty thin this year we we didn't have much water this year so the last few times i've been out there just really wasn't enough water and it's a little too warm even even way up at the high altitudes, water's a tad warm for the for the fish. So it's uh, we've had a slow year here, but um, was it a bad fire season too? It has been, still is, still is. Fire season, you know, used to used to end in October, November, and now it kind of goes all year. That's right. That's right. I, in fact, I've heard that uh, the Forest Service doesn't call it a fire season anymore. They, they do call it like a fire year. Yeah. It's just, it's, that's the way it is. And I guess that's part, well, and that gets us on to, I don't want to get a ton into the conservation piece um, here, but you know, it does get it, bring us to that whole thing and, and changes there. And you talk a little bit about some of the conservation issues. What, what's your take on, 
or not your take, but you know, in your writing, you, you, you occasionally talk about that stuff. Do you feel like, you know, and again, I, I interviewed Steve Duda and we had this conversation as well. Um, but, uh, do you feel like you're, you kind of need to share those things? It's important to, to, well, you teach, you know, tell people about some of these issues. Yeah, I, I think it's real important. Um, but I think it's, um, you know, I think it's pretty much of a global issue at this point. There was a time when, you know, you could worry about, uh, you worry about minimum flows on your own little creek at home, but, um, you know, we need to deal with global warming. And um, that's a political issue, and it's a global issue. And we need to get back into the Paris Agreement, and, uh, you know, we need to bear down on that because it's it's happening. It's clearly happening for anybody who cares to just, you know, look at the evidence. And um, it's not going to, we're not going to be able to turn it around in a couple of years. I mean, we're going to, we're going to live with it now for, you know, a hundred years. And, uh, you know, we've got to figure out how to deal with it. Yeah, that's, that's how I feel too. If it took, you know, it took us, uh, you know, a few hundred years to get here to this point where we're, you know, collapsing of populations and stuff. It's going to take us at least that long to get back to some kind of normal level but well i guess there's lots of places where we won't get back to oh yeah well we won't get back but we can maybe we can not completely wipe out all life on the planet yeah, you know? that's right that's right that's uh well when you're talking about the uh, small streams fishing you know a couple of things popped in my mind and you know tenkara euro nymphing uh, a jeep uh i know you've had a jeep in the past you Maybe you can talk a little bit about how you get into your your fishing areas, whether you still have a jeep, and then and then your process in Tinkara. I know you picked up Tinkara a while back. Well, um, yeah, that's that's not entirely true. I I got interested in Tinkara when it started to, you know, first just started to get popular, and um, I just decided that it was something I should write a. I was still writing my uh, column for Fly Run Reel then. And I just decided there's a column here. And in the interest of um, journalistic accuracy, I didn't want to just, you know, get a rod and spend an afternoon with it and write a story, right? Yeah. So I um, I decided to go ahead and uh, and learn how to do it. So I spent a season um, doing all my all my small stream fishing with a Tinkara rod. And uh, I went out with um, Daniel Gallardo. I think he still lived in San Francisco then, but he came out and fished with uh, me and Ed Engel for a couple of days, and we took him up on some of these little creeks we know. And it's, uh, you know, Tinkara is a nice, it's a nice way to, um, to fish pocket water. Uh, especially for smaller fish, and um, and I wrote the story, and then it just got around that I was now a Tenkara guy. But I mean, I just I once I wrote the story, I think I only I think I only ever fished with a Tenkara rod once after that. Yeah, and that's because I was going out with Daniel, gotcha. and I just <laughs> I just thought it would be polite. Yeah, to, to fish with Tenkara. 
Gotcha. So yeah, that was that was what. No, I'm glad you you cleared the uh, cleared the uh, the information there. Yeah. So you're you're not into it, but you tried it. It's, and it says a lot about you know your your style too. The fact that you'd pick up do it for a whole season and and you know test it out and and try it to, to be true on it. Well, and you know it's one of those things that that happens when you're writing. It's like you know I didn't make any money on that column, right? Because I I spent so much time on it. <laughs> you know the pay the payoff wasn't worth it, but but you know it's any time you can do a better job instead of a worse job, you just have to do it. Yeah, and it, it just figure it, it's all going to work out in the end. Yep, and it did because that I, I then expanded that into a chapter in the book. I can't remember which one, and uh, you know, so it probably worked out. Sure. Sure. Do you, um, so do you have a Jeep? I know you wrote about it in the past. Yeah. Yeah, I do. Oh, cool. Cool. And I, I think what I, you, uh, and you use that and that's kind of one of your tools, right? That's one of your tools to get into some of these places. Is that the, the main reason that you kind of like having that thing? It's pretty much the only reason. Um, yeah. Although, although, you know, it is kind of fun to just tool around. I mean, sometimes when I'm just going to run down to town and and like pick up a quart of milk and go to the post office. I'll just hop in the Jeep because, you know, they're way fun. Yeah. Uh, I, you know, they're just a cool, a cool unit. And, uh, it's, uh, it's a 2000. So it's the old style. It's not like the new big boxy thing. And, um, everything on it is manual. It's got crank windows and, you know, Nice. Manual transmission and all that stuff, and the manual transfer case, and um, so you know, I mean, it's just it's totally analog. Yeah, and and I like that. That's awesome. Uh, but yeah, I um, I'm not a bad four wheeler. I don't, you know, I don't four wheel for sport like some people do. I four wheel to get where I want to go. Right. And I'm I'm aware that. The worse the road, the more likely it is to uh, eliminate the riffraff. So, I, you know, I do some fairly adventurous stuff, I guess. Um, I've had I've had people in the Jeep that have, you know, gotten that tight-lipped look <laughs> <laughs> yep. to them like, holy crap. But, um, you know, it's, it's, that isn't the part I, I enjoy. The part I enjoy is getting where I'm going and being able to fish. I didn't, I didn't use it much this year because, like I said, those high country streams have been, they've been off. Um, well, it was, they, they were too low. You know, when the, the runoff comes down, you usually get, oh, any, you know, usually from late July through maybe the first couple of weeks of September, depending on the weather, when that country just fishes beautifully and it's, it's a lot of dry flies. And, um, and it just, boy, the season was really short. I mean, it came down um, and it fished for a couple of weeks and then it was just too too far down. Yeah. And um, you just start, at some point, you just start worrying about the, the fish. Right. You know, like, am I, am I going to, you know, hooking mortality, am I going to kill these fish? Right. Even though, even though I've released them and, and nobody wants to do that. 
Yeah, because the temperature of the water is probably a little bit higher as well. Well, just the temperature of the water and, and um, you know, the dissolved oxygen is probably low because uh, they're not running as hard. So the, the riffles aren't churning in as much oxygen into the water. And I don't know, you can tell, you, you know, you fish long enough, you can tell when a, a stream is not in the best shape and the, the fish are beginning to get a little stressed and mm-hmm. you just, you just need to, that's when you need to go someplace else where there's water Yeah. or, you know, stay home and work. Right. You uh, you touched on some adventure stuff and kind of tight-lipped in the vehicle. Do you have a a little short story of a time where kind of a, you know, you've talked about float planes as well, like a near-death experience. Have you ever had one of those things out on your way to a fish in, fish in water? Um, there was one time in a float plane where I, I thought I had a near-death experience, but it was just because I didn't understand what the pilot was doing. Um, we were on a little, we were on the George River in Quebec, with this great pilot named Gilles Moran, a uh, French-Canadian guy. Uh, really little guy. I mean, really short guy. He has to, he has to pile um, uh, cushions on, his, uh, on, the, on the seat so he can see out the front of the plane. <laughs> and he's a wonderful pilot. And we were trying to take off in this very short stretch of river where we've been camped. And... Um, it just wasn't. It just wasn't a long enough. As far as I could see, it just wasn't a long enough stretch of river to uh, to take the plane off. But I mean, what are you going to do? You're, you know, you're hundreds of miles from anywhere. So he um, he he motors upstream and gets to where the the pontoons are like in the riffle. They're in the bottom of the riffle, and and he stands on the throttle. And he roars down, and he just gets airborne, and the trees are just coming up. And, I mean, he's clearly not going to clear the trees, <laughs> right? And because uh, there's a, well, there's like a sharp turn in the river right there. And he's, he's raging at these trees, and at the last minute, he just tips the plane sideways and banks up around the river, along the river, around the <laughs> corner. And takes off. And I mean, he didn't think anything of it. That's just how you do that. But I didn't understand it. I thought we were going right in the trees. Jeez. So I, yeah, I sort of swallowed my gum on that one. <laughs> Damn, that is, I've never been in one of those float planes. I've, uh, I've been in some helicopters and stuff. But yeah, it just sounds like the stories you hear, it just sounds like kind of half the guys you're up there with are kind of loose cannons anyway. So you're kind of always on your seat because of that. I mean, you've done a lot of that float plane stuff. A fair amount. Yeah. And, and I actually have not found that bush pilots are loose cannons. They, they now I've run into a couple who like to act like loose cannons to, um, you know, to freak out the tourists. Cause that's, oh. that's kind of amusing. You gotcha. But uh, I haven't, uh, there's only one guy I can think of whose competence I wonder about. Um, and you and flew with him? Yeah. Yeah, and I won't, I won't name him. But um, no. there was just that one guy, and then there's been a couple others who have the crazy bush pilot act. 
But once they're in the plane, it's kind of all business. Gotcha. Yeah, they don't want to die just like everybody else. They don't want to die any more than I do. And no. and they and they tend to know what they're doing. So um uh Gilles Gilles one of those. I mean, he, he does some stuff that just seems dangerous as hell. And and maybe it is, but I mean he knows the limitations of his skill. And he knows the he knows what the plane will do. And um yeah, I mean, it's just I just trust the guy. I've flown with him a lot. You say, yeah, you have somebody that that's good, and you can see that. I, I kind of compare my, you know, whitewater rafting. I've done quite a bit of that, and I kind of compare things to that because it feels like there's, you know, you, you're pretty much in control, but you know, there's always a chance. You know, that's part mm-hmm. of the excitement. There's always a chance that you know you you could dump and and crazy stuff can go happen. But in 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 the planes, I guess not quite the same thing. A little more controlled. It feels. It sounds like to you, you're you're pretty now, pretty confident. You're not not too worried. You have a a good pilot there. Well, it's yeah. I mean, it's a hard comparison for me to make because I've been on the oars, but I've never flown a plane. Right. So, I don't know if there's a. I don't know if that's a valid comparison or not. But it sounds right. I mean, it, it kind of has a ring to it. Like, yeah, you know, you could get in trouble, but. If you know what you're doing, chances are you won't. Nine times out of ten in a boat, uh, if something goes wrong, you just get wet. Yep. And if you, but if you like come out of the sky at high speed, you know you, things can get pretty hairy. So that's true. That's true. It, it, I think the stakes are a little higher in a plane. Yeah. But um, but you know these guys, these guys are always looking for a place to set it down. I mean, you just see them after a while. Once you know what they're doing, you can just see them doing it. <laughs> you know, you're flying along, and they're just always looking. You look over here and look over there, and you finally realize, yeah, they're looking for a place to set it down if anything goes wrong. Is it a uh, and that is that like putting back in their memory banks, or are they plugging into the GPS and stuff? Um, I there some some are on GPS. Most I think now are on GPS. Yeah. Um, but uh, when I first times I flew, they weren't. They didn't have it. At least not at that level. And of course, it's all it's all visual flight rules. You know, if you can't see, you can't fly. So if it gets too late or if it's cloudy, you know, that's that's sort of the biggest thing is somebody will fly in, drop you off, and say, "Well, you know, I'll be back at four o'clock to pick you up." And then a storm moves in. Right. Um, so I'm stuck out a few times, but. You know, you just but you but you always you always have stuff. I mean, you have a little, you have a little food, you have waterproof stuff, and so you know, you, it's a little uncomfortable. But you know, build build a fire and smudge it for to keep the mosquitoes away, and you know, yeah, nobody nobody wants to do that, but it's you know, it doesn't kill you. Yeah. Although, although I've been I've been with people who thought it was going to kill them. <laughs> Well, it's, it's interesting because you're telling a story right now about, I think, a story in your recent book that you talked about where the guys were dropped off. There was a group, and this was a total crazy thing, but basically the the pilot, I think the pilot was trying to, he dropped him off. He was leaving to die, right? Yeah, um, oh, yeah, yeah. And and that was a, obviously the extreme crazy story, but those guys were out there for, for weeks kind of, you know, <laughs> thought they were dying. 
Um, but, um, but yeah, I mean, you're up there. I, I've been up to Alaska a few times as well and it's, yeah, you're out there, you, you know, you're kind of uh, on your own a little bit, especially when you, you kind of add the bears and stuff like that as well. So have you had yeah. any, any other encounters? So other than planes has been pretty straightforward, just up there fishing, no, no problems. Uh, we had a bear chase us into a lake once and keep us out there for hours. Um, we landed on this. We were fishing out of uh, Ted Gerke's lodge in uh, Ilyaska, outside of Ilyaska. And we flew into a, a river and um, landed on the lake, and we were going to hike up the river. And um, after the plane left and was going to come back and, and pick us up, um, this, this young boar. Uh, brown bear came down and just got real aggressive with us and backed us into the lake uh, up to our armpits and then just sort of paced around Jeez. on the shore and sat. He kept us out there all day. Wow. And, we were, and we were pretty hypothermic by the time the, the plane showed up. Never did, never even strung up a rod. And I had a couple of bears just get a little aggressive or I don't know. It's hard to tell. They, a lot of times they're just, you know, they're after the salmon, you're after the salmon. And if the bear wants to walk through where you are, you let him. I mean, yeah. So, and it's, you know, you feel like he's being aggressive, but chances are he probably just, probably not. He's probably just looking for salmon. Yeah. Well, and it's just a, um, yeah, I've always said, you know, I've been out in the woods lots and, you know, lots and lots and, I know there's been animals around me, you know, cougar. Well, we just had actually the first documented uh, cougar death. Um, cougar killed a, a human for the first time, I think, in Oregon's history. Yeah, just, I read about uh, that. Yeah, just recently. So, but again, it's such the extreme, you know, it's the one in the million sort of thing that most of the time you just basically give them their room and it's no problem. Don't surprise them. Well, the problem with cougars, I mean, bears... Bears just lumber around. They don't, you know, they're at the top of the food chain. They don't care who sees them or hears them. Um, cougars are, are kitties. You know, they're big kitties, and they're real secretive. And half the time, you don't even know they're there. No. Better than half the time. Oh, yeah. You know, I've lived in mountain lion country for almost half a century, and I think I've seen four. But I, but, I mean, I found just on my little piece of property up here in the foothills. I mean, I found deer kills, scratch marks on trees, poop, tracks, you name it. They're around, but you never see them. Nope. You never see them. You never hear them. I mean, they're just, they're like ghosts, but you yep. know they're around. <laughs> I was hunting rabbits one time in, you know, on snowshoes, and uh, I was kind of halfway up a hill a ridge going around tracking a, a snowshoe hare. And I happened to look over my shoulder and there's a mountain lion standing behind me and above on the ridge looking at me. And as soon as I looked at him, he turned around and ran. Hmm. And just out of curiosity, I slogged up there and I could see that his tracks, he was above and behind me and his tracks paralleled my tracks for like half oh, a mile. Damn. And I don't know if he was stalking me or if he was just curious or, I mean, just like, what is this, you know, slow moving, bad smelling thing in my woods? Um, 
you know, I you don't know, but yeah, things like that happen. I you know, I think we all of us who spend time outside, we've probably been in more danger than we know a couple of times. That's right. That's right. No, it's it's interesting stuff. I love the. I've seen the same same as you. I, I I've seen I think three cougars in, in the in the wild, and they've all been amazing amazing experiences for sure. You know, the tourists are always worried about wild animals. They think wild animals are going to get them. Right. And and the chances are, what's going to get them is they're going to get lost or they're going to fall. You know, their own their own ineptness is going to get them. That's right. Or they're going to get in an accident driving to the site. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Exactly. I mean, we, we lose them. We lose tourists every year. I live right a few miles from Rocky Mountain National Park. Oh, wow. And, uh, you know, God, search and rescues up there a couple of times a year looking for people. And every once in a while, they, they bring the body out in a, in a body bag because somebody walked off in the mountains by themselves, didn't tell anybody where they were going. They're dressed in shorts and flip-flops and a t-shirt and they stay out overnight it gets to be 28 degrees uh they panic they run they fall it, you know it does happen yeah i was thinking going back we've been talking a little bit about you know death and stuff you know like that i think uh, now this is another quote i heard you mention it and it was something like you know when you were 40 you were kind of thinking like it was the whole thing with alcohol and and drugs and stuff like that. And I know I've had times in my life where I've definitely drank way too much beer and, you know, and I kind of wonder sometimes like what effect, you know, that might have long-term. But I think the quote you said was basically at 40, you wondered, you kind of thought about, well, if, if I take care of myself, you know, maybe I have another 40, you know, if I don't pickle my brain. Um, what do you feel, you know, when you look back, you know, obviously it's fun kind of doing that thing, but have you seen kind of the drugs and alcohol or any of that stuff uh, feel like that's affected your life and it could be positively or negatively. What, what's your take on that? Um, I think probably it affected me more positively than negatively because it's, I, I, I hit a point late thirties, early forties where I just thought, okay, you need to stop this. But, you know, I think, I think drugs and alcohol tended to loosen me up and, um, you know, I had a lot of fun doing that stuff. And then I just sort of decided, well, if you're going to be a writer, you should probably have your wits about you. And, you know, and you, you know, you see people who, who've gone too far and don't have their wits about them anymore. And so you just, um, you know, you drift out of it. Right. Uh, I haven't had a drink. I haven't had a drink in 30 years. I haven't. No kidding. I haven't smoked pot in at least that long. No kidding. Even though it's, uh, even though it's all legal, it's becoming legal now, right? Well, yeah, yeah. And it's, you know, it should have been a dream come true. And, and actually, I mean, I was, I've always been in favor of it. Yeah. Uh, I, I wrote a, I wrote an editorial in the local paper saying, telling people to, to vote for legalization because, you know, cool. it's a victim. It's a victimless crime. It doesn't hurt anything. No, uh, it's uh, alcohol is much more, uh, dangerous and, yeah. uh, and causes, causes a lot more problems. I mean, people don't smoke pot and beat their wives. No, you know, they really no. don't. No. And not only does, 
does pot not hurt anybody, but it actually actually helps and can help millions of people just with the, um, that's even the, the non-T, you know, just the CBD stuff, just for health stuff. Oh, absolutely, yeah. There's um, there's a whole industry out here where they've manufactured some or, or engineered some kind of uh, marijuana that they call, uh, what do they call it, the hippie's disappointment because it has hardly any THC in it. Nice. <laughs> but it's keeping these kids from having seizures. Yeah. And a, a lot of people have moved here so their kids can get this treatment. And, they're, you know, our kids were essentially dying because they were having seizures, and now they're they're not anymore. Wow. Um, just as one example. Yeah. And, you know, the people who were against it, they thought Colorado was going to turn into the night of the living dead overnight, but you know, it just hasn't. No. I mean, you wouldn't, you wouldn't know. You don't, you don't see zombies wandering the streets or anything. No. There's no more people stoned now than there were before it was legal. Nope. No. And that's the same thing in uh, Oregon. And you see the same thing where, you know, I think they've done a good job keeping things like, you know, you go into those places to get, you know, get your get your stuff and i mean they're clean and they're you know i mean it, yeah. it's not it's not a, sh- a shady sort of thing I mean, it's a great it's a great experience so yeah yeah you're not buying pot from some barefoot guy down a dark alley anymore and that's the great thing about it you know for for those who uh you know who do it or want to do it i mean anybody could go in yeah it's like you could choose your you know exactly it's down to a, just a great you know like how do you what do you want do you want a little cbd do you want a lot of cbd you know it's just this amazing so i think i think it's been pretty cool to watch that whole uh, transformation yeah i did actually buy some once because after it became legal uh, just as a um uh i was writing a column for the paper for the newspaper and i just wanted to see what it was like i bought plenty of pot illegally in my time and i just wanted to see what it was like to buy it legally yeah and it was kind of fun yeah and uh and i gave it i gave it to a friend who was happy to have it but you know i mean yeah i mean you can get everything from bruce banner and ak-47 to mama son and sleepy time i mean mm-hmm. whatever you want that's the great thing that the two things i like most about it is uh the names that they come up and then the names of the actual businesses as they're popping up around. I mean, they are, they're all pretty much hilarious. They're all just, just the great name. And you probably see that too, these names of these places that are popping up. Yeah. Not so much the names of the places. Names of the places seem pretty innocuous. We've got a Bud Depot and, you know, stuff all like right. that. But, but, uh, the, the names of the, of the marijuana, like Bruce Banner, I mean, what does that tell you? Yeah. I don't know, actually. <laughs> I'm, trying, I'm trying to figure that out. There's a Death Star, and it's like, okay, I, I, got, I got a sense of what that's, that would be like. That's true. No, this is, this is awesome. I, we mentioned, I think, this off air, but Joe Rogan, you know, the podcast, which is one of the biggest podcasts, you know, on, in the world, he, he had uh, uh, whatever the, the CEO of uh, Tesla mm-hmm. on and, and actually smoked some weed on uh, on the podcast so the fact that we're remote uh you know if, if we were in person i might break out something for you to try to do the same thing see if i could increase my ratings on the show but uh, if <laughs> I, I guess if we were to be in that place uh you know in person you probably still wouldn't partake huh 
probably not. But you know, I'm drinking some really strong coffee here. If that helps. Oh, there you go. There you go. So that is that your is that kind of your your vice now that you have in your coffee and tobacco. When I when I quit everything, drugs and booze, I promised myself there'd always be coffee and tobacco. Yep. And what is the tobacco like? What 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 form? Cigarettes. Oh, okay. Yeah. So you still so that still helps with your uh, just that, I mean that is yeah that's the, definitely a vice coffee and tobacco. Well, you know they're legal. They don't change your behavior much. Yep. I was thinking when you were talking about um, again <laughs> staying on the uh, the marijuana uh, sort of thing. Um, I think about the Beatles, right? Because they went from this little clean cut, you know, Beatles band, right, with all their music, and all of a sudden the White Album came out. I think yeah. it was that one, and and it and it basically, I think a big part was because they started smoking weed and, and kind of doing mind altering uh, LSD and stuff. If we look back at your books in that time when you stopped, um, kind of you know all the alcohol and all that stuff, can we see a change in your writing? Do you think? Well, it'd be hard to put a finger on a specific change, but I actually think I write better now than I used to. But I think it's probably as much, I think part of it is, is uh, not being stoned. And part of it is just uh, that I've worked at it for 40 some years and, you know, you're bound to get better instead of worse. Yeah. You've, you've kind of perfected your craft, right? Well, no, but I'm, but I'm in the process of perfecting the craft. I don't think I'll ever perfect it. Mm-hmm. But um, uh, I'm I'm still working on it, and I still consider myself a a student of writing instead of a master. Right, right. Now that's awesome. Well, John, we're uh, we've definitely pushed it here. I I, I know. Um, I don't know if you have a, a quick a little time for a little rapid fire round. I think we're coming close to uh, yeah. Okay. Start. Yeah, I just have a few questions I always ask everybody, and uh, maybe I could zip through if just a rapid fire. So the first one is um, just a couple of flies. You know, you're talking about fishing those spring creeks. Do you have uh, maybe a couple of go-to flies you like to use there? Yeah, I really like the um, here's your parachute. Okay. And um, a lot of times I will fish a here's your parachute with a um, here's your soft tackle dropper behind it. Oh, cool. Although my, my rule is if I get two or three strikes in a row on the dry fly, I cut the dropper off. Okay. Yep. Perfect. And um, so as far as just books and resources, obviously you've got tons of stuff here. Do you have anybody else you would recommend to, uh, or you like reading as far as magazines, books, or other videos or resources? Oh, God. Uh, I would read John McPhee. Mm-hmm. Pretty much anything by John McPhee. Um, I really like Alice Monroe. I know she's not for everyone, but I really like the way she tells a story. And in fact, I've got every book she's ever published and I study her trying to, trying to figure out exactly how she does what she does. And, um, the jury's still out. Uh, it's, it's like magic the way she tells a story. Um, I've I've always liked Tom McGuane. Um I know him a little bit. We're not pals or anything, but I've fished with him a few times and correspond from time to time. He's a really interesting guy, really fine writer. Uh I always liked Jim Harrison, uh, 
broke my heart when he died. Uh, and Harrison, you know, I, I like McGuane for his just superhuman control. I mean, every word is right. Everything is right. And I've liked Jim Harrison for his apparent lack of control. The guy's just totally out of control. <laughs> but, and you know, it's like this complete stream of consciousness, free association stuff. But once again, I mean, he really can tell a story. Yeah. I don't know, lots of, I've, I've read a bazillion, a bazillion writers and right. people ask me, people ask me about famous, fa- favorite writers and it always just, the names always fly out of my head. Uh, it, it actually doesn't hurt to go back and read old, good old Ernest Hemingway. Sure. Um, he really, you know, if it wasn't for Hemingway, we wouldn't, none of us would write the way we do. He just he brought in that journalistic plain spokenness that uh All right. Before yep. that before Hemingway everybody wrote like a Victorian lawyer. No and kidding. After, him, after Hemingway everybody wrote like a journalist. That's crazy. A, yeah, it is crazy. Peter Matheson, he's another one who died oh, yeah. not too long ago. Um uh, The Snow Leopard is a great book. Far Tortuga is a great book. Yeah, that's a that's a, on Hemingway. That's a pretty interesting thing. When you look, thinking of your your life, uh, you know, I kind of ask this question occasionally. If you look out fifty or hundred years when we're when we're both gone, is there anything kind of you would want to be remembered for, or, or you know, in all your work? Oh, it would just delight me if in fifty years people would still read my books. Mm-hmm. You know, and they'd probably they'd probably be reading them as a historical artifact, but. Huh. That doesn't matter. I mean, if people if people are still reading me in fifty years, that would be delightful. Yeah. Well, it seems like with the fly fishing writing, and, and that's one of the interesting things where you're you've got your craft. You're at t- you're at the top of your game. You're you're you know so well known. Um, but even just in fly fishing, I mean, we've talked about this before too. There's tons of fly fishing writers. Like maybe more people writing about fly fishing than other other sports and stuff put together. I don't know how much truth there is to that, but What's your take on that? Well, I don't know. I think there's something about um, there's something about the sport. You know, a lot of writers fly fish. I think there's something about the sport and something about that kind of urge to to write that intersects somewhere. Um, and I think it's um, just in terms of, of the fly fishing. I think a lot of people think, well, you know, what a life it would be if I could make a living writing about what I like to do. Yeah. Um, and so, you you know, I just, I was just with uh, Tom Rosenbauer from Orvis up in oh, yeah. uh, Labrador. Interesting guy. In fact, I did his podcast a while back. I heard that, yeah. And, um, you know, there's a guy who just parlayed fishing into a life. And, uh, you know, he hooked, he did it differently than I did. He hooked up with Orvis, but he's written some really, really good instructional books. I mean, I still, when people say, what's, you know, what's the book to read if I want to get into fly fishing, I, I tell them it's Tom Rosenbauer's Fly Fishing Guide, Orvis Fly mm-hmm. Fishing Guide. Mm-hmm. Because it's just all, he's a, he's a good technical writer. It's all good, usable, accurate stuff. And, um, but, you know, he was up there with, uh, 
guy named Colin, somebody, he was, they were shooting a TV show up there. And so he was, he was real busy, but you know, he just had a ball. He was just having a ball and he yeah. was working. And that's, you know, anytime you can, you can be doing your job and having a ball, that's just a real attractive idea to people. That's cool. I think the, uh, yeah, I love the Orvis story because I think they're, they're kind of known as the big corporate, you know, I guess they're the big company that's been around a long time. But the cool thing is they got a lot of really great people in that company. And I'm hearing those stories now that I've been doing this podcast and for, you know, whatever your take is on Orvis and stuff over the years, I think, I think they got some really neat people in there and, you know, which is, oh, I mean, I guess you could say that for a lot of the fly fishing companies. Well, they, yeah, they attract people like that. Yeah. Um, so yeah, keeping a couple more here, uh, John, before I let you go, but, um, uh, do you have a bucket list, uh, place you've, you haven't fished that you kind of, you know, before the end of the day you want to get out to? Mm, not really. I mean, I, I, I would like to go up to, um, Iceland. Oh yeah. And, um, fish not, not so much for salmon as, um, sea run browns. I've never caught I've never caught sea run brown trout, and I, I'd like to do that. And um, I was actually working on a guy who has a uh, runs a fishing outfit up there, but nothing uh, nothing ever came of it. But that's that's one place I wouldn't mind going. Okay. And um, you've done a lot of traveling. What is do you think is the thing you love most about the traveling that you do to get to your fly fishing spots? Oh God! Just finally getting off the plane and being there. Um, yeah. I, you know, I don't, I don't enjoy the traveling part of it as much as I enjoy where I where I get to. Uh, I was, like I said, I was just in Labrador, and um, God, that's awful to to go to Labrador. I mean, it's a lot of flights and oh, really? a lot of airports, and it's real expensive. And um, yeah. I won't. I won't mention the airline, but they're not the most dependable. Sure. And um, you know, I'm actually more comfortable once I get up to Wabush, and I'm staying in the. I stay in a hotel up there called the Two Seasons <laughs> instead of the Four Seasons, and <laughs> um, and you know, it's just it's all fishermen and basically fishermen and miners. It's a it's a big iron mining area up oh, there. Yeah. And that's the jumping off place. And from there, it's all float planes. And that's really comfortable flying for me because, you know, I mean, if, if somebody's, uh, if somebody's late, they'll wait for you. You know, they go, well, uh, geez, I think John's still in the bathroom. They go, okay, we'll wait. And, um, you know, if the weather's bad, you just don't fly. You know, the pilots just say, go back, have another cup of coffee. Maybe it'll clear off in an hour. And I, I don't know. I just find that, I just find that really comfortable. You know, it's more like flying in a De Havilland Beaver is just like riding in somebody's pickup truck, basically, except it's up in the air. Yeah. Yeah. Huh. Okay. And, uh, I just had one more quote and this comes from, I think this was Ed Engel you wrote about, um, and he said something like, I guess, uh, kind of paraphrasing, he, uh, you know, he said, I, I don't write about any stream I can roll cast across and I can roll cast a hell of a long ways. 
I love that quote because we've had this talk before about, you know, you're writing about fishing and what's your, what's your feeling on, you know, I know a lot of the places you write about, you don't kind of mention names and things like that, mm-hmm. but you know, as far as more people going to these places and more pressure, what, what's your feeling on that? Well, I, you know, basically I don't like it. Um, when I, when I moved to Colorado, there were like 2 million people in the state and now there's more than 5 million and it's still going. And I think all those 3 million new people bought a fly rod the first week they were here. <laughs> so the rivers have gotten really crowded and the fishing has declined uh, about the way you'd expect it to. And so I, you know, I, um, every once in a while I think about moving somewhere. You know, it's a little less settled. I mean, I live in a nice place. I'm, I'm off the, I'm off the state highway. I'm up in a dead end valley. Uh, it's quiet here. I've got a little bit of land around me and got more, got more mule deer than neighbors. And, but, um, it's starting to get crowded and I kind of wish it weren't, but you know, at the same time, I'm going to turn 72 this fall and big moves get harder as you get older. You'll, uh, you'll learn that in time. Mm -hmm. And, um, I can still, they're still out of the way places I know. And they're maybe not, they're, they're not quite as unknown as, they once were, but they're not real popular, and I can I can get away from it um, still. And and I'm not sure that at my age, I'm not sure I'd learn a new place quite that completely, if you know what I mean. Yep. No, I hear you. I hear you. We just moved recently, and God, we're we're eight months into it, and it's still <laughs> we're still struggling. You know, it's uh. I think, yeah, it's, it's moving is tough. I, well, it's the hardest thing. I guess one of the hardest things we, we all do when you have to do it. Yeah, seems like it. Yeah. Okay, good. Well, I think I'm about there. You know, I, I, I've i got a zillion questions I could still ask you, John, but I hope to uh, maybe if uh, if this wasn't too uh, too tough on you, maybe down the line next year or something like that, we could bring you back on to answer the rest of them. But uh, I just want to leave, uh, just before we get out of here, the next six to 12 months, do you have anything new that uh, we can expect from you or anything to keep a lookout for? Well, I'm working on a book now, or actually will uh, will start uh, towards the end of the month once I've got one more trip. And uh, it's due at the publisher in uh, spring of 2019. It'll be published in uh, 2020, spring of 2020. Don't have a title yet. Okay. Good. So you got some more books coming out, and I think you mentioned I heard somewhere where you've got another two or three year contract or something like that on your with your current publisher. Yeah, yeah, I signed another two book contract. Two books. Okay, great. And um, and you know I I the after uh, Fly Rod Reel went out of business, Bob White and I, Bob's my illustrator on my column. We moved to Trout Magazine, so we're in Trout Magazine now. Oh, nice, nice. All right. Well, I will, um, I'll leave a link to those places. And as far as people to find you, you think, uh, John is probably the best place. They have questions or whatever. Probably is. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. That'll, uh, that, that links to everything. 
Okay, great. Well, I'll do my best to uh, cover everything we, we talked about here in the show notes. And um, yeah, John, I just want to thank you. We definitely went a little bit longer on time and had a little technical uh, stuff at the start. So I appreciate you coming on to uh, you know talk about all this. And just want to thank you for everything you've done. I think with fly fishing, I think the more people that read you, I think the more, you know, I, we talked about how it's maybe more pressure, but I think that the more people we get into fly fishing, the better more conservation minded people we're going to have as well so I, I i want to thank you for everything you've done well i appreciate that thank you so there it is wetflyswing.com slash 359 359 will give you an updated blog post uh we're going to be adding some uh some information to that old blog post we had from almost four years ago uh some more links in there and uh and we'll just get you some extra information Okay, I'm heading out of here. This is my last one. I'm trying to batch these babies, uh, these intros, because I'm heading out, obviously, on summer break. And so I'm doing this ahead of time right now. I'm, I'm speaking from the past, uh, the past tense. So I'm not going to waste any more time. I'm heading on the river. Hope you are also getting on the river or uh, getting on the water. And if you get a chance, drop me a line anytime. Dave at wetflyswing.com. Have a great, great rest of the summer and uh and i hope you have a good morning good afternoon or good evening wherever you are in the world talk to you soon thanks for listening to the wet fly swing fly fishing show for notes and links from this episode visit wetflyswing.com